So I don't know how many of last week's six days of readings we can cover in this class in the next 45 minutes. But we're going to cover a few of them at least, and the rest, they're all in your handout to, so that you can see it and make sense. To get in the flow of this, I think it's helpful for us not to start with the passage in John that you started with this week, but just to go over the quick passages of John that got us up there. So we started with the theme from creation in John 1, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then we moved last week and talked about the theme of life and light as John continues in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then we proceeded with John the Baptist part of verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And that was our reading last week of what we covered in class. New material starts right now. So this week we started with John 1, 9. The true light enlightened. And one nine says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, what I really wanted our context to tell us is some, hello, Tim, some of what the light meant to the readers in John's day. What did light mean to John? We can all do the visual image of you're in a dark room, you turn on a light, Light beats dark. And we can all understand the ideas that we had last week, that the Word who became light is prophesied in the Psalms, that the Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But John spends more time on it, and the Old Testament puts it into greater context, which is what I sought for us to do. So, the true light that enlightens, the true light which gives light to everyone coming into the world. Here's what we've got. The true light which gives light. This theme of John you're going to see over and over and over. And that true light, that light was coming into the world. So let's take that and use that as the backbone to try to understand not only the image John gives but the image that's drawn contextually from the flow of Scripture in the Old Testament. So, you got the world. If the light's coming into the world, what we've got to understand is, first, there was darkness. Not in the creation account. The creation account was good. But in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3, Dr. Fleming referenced them and quoted Genesis 3.15 this morning. In Genesis 3, by the way, that's kind of cool. If you're reading along with this plan, you're reading along with a plan that your pastor's reading in his quiet time each day. And uh, not just one of them, all of them. The, the staff is committed to doing this, and, and, and it's, it's just kind of cool to know that 
that you're, 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 we're all focusing in together in a united way. I, I really, really like that. So God created the world. He made man and woman. That was a really, really good thing. But man and woman sinned. And that's the fall that's talked about in Genesis chapter 3. And the, after the fall, Pastor Fleming referenced Genesis 3.15, if we go to the Elmo. And in Genesis 3.15, this is all part of the curse that God's declaring to the serpent. And God in this curse declares, let's see if we can do it this way. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above beasts of the field. On your belly you'll go. You'll eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's generally recognized by most scholars as the first clear prophecy about Jesus. It's one that Paul references in Galatians as being prophetic about Jesus, that Jesus is the he that will ultimately be offspring of woman who will bruise the head of Satan. And so if we go back to the PowerPoint for a moment, we read in Genesis 2 and 3 of the darkness that came about as a result of the curse. Man is fallen. The serpent's cursed. Woman is fallen. And there's a darkness that pervades. If we go to Romans 1, 18 through 21, Paul gives us an explanation, which was our next reading. Paul gives us an explanation of this darkness. And Paul makes it real clear in this passage in Romans. He says, if we go back to the Elmo for a moment. For the wrath of God. Let's make it a little bit bigger for my wife because she's big on scripture. That was not a reference to her vision. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men. Now, what do we have in Genesis 3? We have ungodliness and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them. God's shown it to him. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation. In the things that have been made, people are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, that is the Old Testament image. And I want you to hang on to that phrase as we work through these other passages. Their foolish hearts were darkened 
by their unrighteousness and their ungodliness. I want to tell you something I learned in my life. Even as a saved believer, ungodliness and unrighteousness will still darken your heart and your thinking. That's just the way it is. Sticking your hand in the fire will burn you. That's not because God's not merciful. That's not because God can't trump fire. It's the way it is. Ungodliness and unrighteousness will darken your hearts and your thinking. That's just the way it is. So, Romans 1, 18 through 21 explains the darkness. Job 29 and 30, those two chapters, illustrate the darkness. I want to go to those chapters because I think these are chapters that show the Jewish mentality that John had that explains and contextualizes what John's saying when he says, Jesus was the light. The true light that gives, who gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. You see it in John 20, uh, in Job 29. Here Job, and some of y'all were worried, where's he gonna put Job? And I was worried, where's he gonna put Job? (laughs) This is a marvelous way to contextualize two chapters of Job. Job, make sure we're all on the same page here. Job's the one who had a zippity-doo-dah great life. Had the family, had the position, had the popularity, had the wealth. And all of it cratered except for his marriage to his wife. And it was not anything to whistle about. She was the one who kept telling him, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? So anytime your wife's urging death upon you, you know it's time to seek marital counseling. General rule, we're helpful here. So Job's had this misery, and in the midst of it, here's what he says. Job starts talking again. It sounds a little more biblical to say, Job again took up his discourse and said. But it just means, okay, Job's turn. Here's what he says. Oh, oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Now this, what we're about to read from Job, is in the Jewish mind the difference between walking in light and walking in darkness. So when John says that Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, John is saying this idea of what walking in the light is, is what all of us can have in Jesus Christ. Look, in my prime, 
when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, my children all around me, my steps were washed with butter. The rock poured out for me streams of oil. That's good Texas talk. (laughs) Fracking in the Bible. This is what it's like to have light. It's to be an intimate fellowship with the Almighty. It's your family to be wonderful and marvelous. It's your life to be prosperous. It's to be, go out to the gate of the city where you have your seat in the square, where young men see you and withdrew the aged, rose and stood. Young men would get up, here, this is your seat. Princes. Said, I'd I'd like to hear what you have to say. As opposed to talking themselves. Look at, we'll skip down to verse 14 in the interest of time. I put on righteousness. It clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the needy. When I was in the light... I was in a position of everything being marvelous with the Almighty. And I was able to take those blessings and be a blessing to other people. That's what it's like to be in the light. And it's contrasted with with those who are in the darkness. Which is where he goes in verse 30. He talks about in uh, chapter 30. In chapter 30, now he's in the darkness. He's no longer in the light now, but now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, they laugh at me. My vigor's gone. I want hard hunger. Everything is miserable. People abhor me. How about that? Where is verse 10? People abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They'll spit at the side of me. God's loosed my cord, humbled me. The rabble rise, they push away my feet, they break up my path. My life is terrible in the darkness, but so blessed in the light. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, Job 29 and 30 illustrates what it's like to be in the light versus to be in the darkness. And if you've read that or you've lived that or you've experienced that, the idea that the true light, which gives light to everyone, would become into the world is a phenomenal statement by John. We can go further. Isaiah 2, the first five verses, Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 17, they promise that the light's going to come. They promise that there's going to be this special light from God. Look briefly at these passages, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. What a prophecy. The word of, that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It'll come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. It'll be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it. This isn't the righteousness just for the Jew. 
This is a righteousness for everyone. What Isaiah is prophesying is a prophecy for all people of the world. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, the word of the Lord. John knows these prophecies. He's memorized these prophecies when he calls Jesus the word. He knows the prophecy from Isaiah about the word of the Lord that will go out from Jerusalem that will judge between the nations. Where people will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. There will come a day when the peace of Jesus exists. When nations shall not lift up sword against nation, they will not learn war anymore. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word is the light from Isaiah 42. We read similar, well, that was Isaiah 2, but you read similarly in Isaiah 42. Our reading from Isaiah 42 starts with verse 5. Here's what God says in Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. This is something that's echoing in John's mind. We're a week from John saying in the beginning and echoing creation. But it's just seven verses earlier in the book. So this is creation. The God who, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. This is the Lord who stretches out the earth, spreads out the earth. What comes from it, who gives breath to the people and spirit to those who walk in it. Thus saith the Lord, creator God, the word. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. What Job did when he was the light. Eyes for the blind. To bring the prisoners from the dungeon. From those prisoners who sit in darkness. This is the context the rich context of John. So in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 42, if we go back to the PowerPoint, God promises the light, explains the light's going to do the very things that Jesus did, and to finish it all off with a bow, we add Proverbs 4.18, which just is a one-verse rendition contrasting life in lightness, no, life in the light, Versus light in darkness. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't even know what's tripping them up. And that is the Old Testament contextual reading on the day where we looked at the true light, giving light to everyone that was coming into the world. Now, if you know, if your Bible Old Testament brain is wrapped around these passages of light, 
And the difference between light and darkness. When the true light's coming in to give light to the world, to move you in righteousness, to open the eyes and the blessings of God and put you in intimacy with God, to turn you into God's light for the nations, to turn you into someone who opens the eyes of the blind and ministers and does the work of God. Are you in or out? I'm in. John continues and he says, but here's the interesting part. Pastor David did a great job with this this morning. Jesus, the Word, was in the world. Actually physically came into the world. And the world was made through Him. Yet the world didn't know Him. Even beyond the world, look at the Jewish people. He came to His own. His own people did not receive Him. Even though the world's made through Him, the world doesn't know Him, and His own people don't receive Him. They don't know who He is. On this day, we won't go through it all because of time, but Matthew 1, 1 through 17, we looked at the lineage of Jesus and we showed through the, the, the lineage of Matthew that Jesus truly is a descendant as per all the Old Testament promises. That offspring from Genesis 3 that would be the blessing for the world that would crush the head of Satan, that's Jesus. We go further, Jeremiah 33 we looked at, that's one of those passages in the Old Testament where the prophet Jeremiah prophesies beyond his own day into the day of Jesus. And he promises that the lineage of Jesus will be a lineage that Jesus' was in fact uh, 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 there. And so we can go into it further. But I've got it in the text, and in the interest of time, I'm going to zip past it. Then we had Matthew 21, 23 through 46. Now, this is a passage where the people, the Jews now, Jesus' own people, don't receive him, but they reject him. And Jesus tells two parables about the rejecting of the Son. And so we get all of the rejection that goes with it. Psalm 118 is a psalm lamenting. What it is to be so rejected. And so with all of this, we have finally Psalms 3 and 4. And those two Psalms talk about how God will protect even those who are rejected. And it's a prophetic promise of the protection God gave to Jesus. Even while Jesus was rejected by the world and by his own. Paul summarizes it in this passage we will look at. In Romans 3, Paul says basically a summary of everything that we read on those days. Romans 3, the first 20 verses. Paul begins, if we go to the Elmo. Okay. So... Paul's asking this question in Romans. He's been talking about how Jews are just like Gentiles condemned before God. And he's saying, so you might be asking, what advantage is there to being a Jew? And that's where we're picking this up. He says, what advantage does the Jew have? What's the value of circumcision? Well, there's lots. To start with, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They got the Old Testament. They got the Bible. Now, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faith Listness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Make an oito. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it's written, 
that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Whoops, I'm sorry. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what are we going to say? God's unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way. By no means. How could God judge the world? I mean, if we think God can't judge, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If if the fact that I am a sinner, if the fact that I'm a sinner shows God's glory so much, then what's wrong with being a sinner? I'm helping show the glory of God. He says, nah, none of that works. Verse 9. So are we Jews any better off, though, before God? Not at all. We've already charged all. Greeks and Jews are under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Everyone's turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. He just keeps going on and on and on. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of those who do not believe and honor God, who did not see Jesus. It's the condition of everyone without Jesus. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, Paul summarizes what life is like. The world that doesn't know him. The people that don't receive him. It's a darkness that's permeating into a sinfulness. And then we have Isaiah 8, which is a promised rejection of Jesus. The idea that Jesus was rejected, prophesied from the beginning. Now, in the interest of time, we've got to move on and contrast it with what John says about the believer. He says, however, while the world didn't know him and his own people didn't receive him, to those, all of those who did receive him, who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, all who believed had the right to become children of God. These aren't words John's just pulling out of a hat. These are words steeped in the Old Testament. The idea of us being God's adopted children is not something Paul just comes up with or John just came up with. They knew their scripture. They knew Jeremiah 31, 1 through 14. Jeremiah 31. The prophet writes, at that time declares the Lord, I'll be the God of all the clans of Israel. They'll be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've continued my faithfulness to you. I will build you again. You shall be built. You shall adorn yourselves with tambourines. You'll go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. You'll plant vineyards. 
There will be a day when watchmen will call and say, Arise, let's go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. They'll sing aloud with gladness. O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel, and I'll bring them from the north country and I'll gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. I'll gather the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman in labor. With weeping they'll come. Hear the word of the Lord. Ah, There it is. In a straight path in which shall not stumble. I am father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. They'll be children of Almighty God. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Not just Israel, O nations. Declare it in the coastlands that he who scattered Israel will gather him. Keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He's redeemed him. They'll come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They'll be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. It keeps going. The young women will rejoice in the dance. The young men, the old men will be merry. I'll turn mourning to joy. I'll comfort them. Give them gladness for sorrow. Thus says the Lord. Verse 15. A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children. Because they are no more. This is a prophetic word. Matthew links that to the slaughter of the innocents when Herod kills all of the infants. Because Jeremiah was recognized by the apostles in the early church, Jeremiah 33 is prophetic about the time of Jesus where God calls His people together. He speaks of His children. We go further. In Matthew 2, in Micah 5, In Jeremiah 31, we read the entire saga. Matthew 2 talks about Jesus coming. Talks about the slaughter of the innocents. But talks about it as God bringing His nation to, I mean His kingdom to the people, to the world. It's Matthew 2 that quotes Micah 5, But for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, from you will come forth one who will lead my people. Jeremiah 31 references and goes further and continues to talk about the weeping because the children are no more. But the Lord says, if you go back to it, continuing from there, yes, there'll be a slaughter of the innocents. But keep your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears because there's a reward coming. They'll come back from the land. There's hope for your future. Your children will come back. I heard Ephraim grieving, you've disciplined me. And I was disciplined. But even though different, disciplined, God taught and brought him back. Look at this. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? As often as I speak against him, I still remember him. He calls Israel a faithless daughter. Whoops. A faithless daughter. Jesus... John says, is the solution to the saga. It is through Jesus that we have the right to be children of God. It is through Jesus that this happens. So this is the saga. PowerPoint, please. You read the same thing in Luke chapter 2. 
which links it back to Leviticus 12. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is being presented at the temple and, and, and one who's been waiting beholds the eyes, or beholds the Lamb of God. By the way, that's an interesting passage. I put in Leviticus 12 because it talks about how you, uh, uh, when you present your newborn to the Lord, your firstborn, you present an offering. And there are two sets of offerings. Offerings for the rich parents and offerings for the not-so-rich parents. Jesus was born into a not-so-rich family. They had the poorer offering. Because Jesus wasn't about coming into this world for Jesus' wealth. Jesus set his wealth aside to come into this world. He became impoverished so that we could become children of God. And that's the beauty of, of, of the context behind that day. Now, then we get to John 1.14. And here in the flow of it is what Pastor David spent some good time this morning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Matthew 1.18 through 25 has the incarnation story. You know that story. We just finished it with Christmas. But look at the Isaiah 7 passage. Isaiah 7 has got to, starting in verse 10, it, it contextualizes even earlier, but the part we'll go to is verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Ahaz was a king. These verses could so honeycomb. We could have done a context Bible where you just kind of follow the trail. You know, you, I'm not sure you'd ever get back to the theme as easily, but, but this itself, honey, comes back into Chronicles and into Kings. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask. I won't put the Lord to the test. And then uh, 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 the Lord through Isaiah says, well, hear then, O house of David, and makes the prophecy beyond simply King Ahaz. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us. Emmanuel. It was promised in Isaiah 7. We go back to the PowerPoint. We've got the Luke 1, 26 through 38. Luke tells the same thing about the virgin birth, but Luke goes into a lot more detail. And doesn't that make sense? He's a doctor. He really wanted to know about it. Luke says, I'm writing this from the eyewitnesses I interviewed. I'm absolutely convinced he interviewed Mary. Which is interesting because Luke was just the man for that job. This is a freebie aside. <clears throat> Most Jewish men would not talk to women that were not in their family. It wasn't considered right and proper. Not true for the doctors, because women need doctors. So doctors were trained to talk to women, and they did. So Mary would be comfortable talking to a doctor, and the doctor was comfortable talking to Mary. And I can just see Dr. Luke saying, okay, now, exactly how did this virgin birth thing go down? And he writes it up for us. We have the Proverbs 8, 22 through 36 passage. In Proverbs 8, wisdom, chokmah in the Greek, I mean Hebrew, chokmah, this idea of wisdom is 
personified. Uh, uh, we, we get Ellen up here to, to remind us in our English class that personification means you take something that's not a person and you treat it like a person. And so this idea of wisdom is treated like a person because wisdom is inherent in who Jesus is and who Jesus was. So we find the personification of wisdom in Proverbs eight twenty two through 36. We can read in Job 19, Something prophetic in the same way. We can read in Jeremiah 10, 1 through 16. We can read in 1 John 1 through 4. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. John writing to yet another set. See, there were some people by the end of John's life. They grow into the Gnostic movement. They were actually Gnostics at the time. And Gnostic is a word that we all know but maybe we don't remember all the time what it means, so it helps to remember. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. The Gnostics thought they knew things nobody else was smart enough to know. There were ordinary Christians, but the Gnostics thought they were like super elite spiritual Christians. They had secret knowledge. They knew things that us poor slovenly people just didn't understand because we weren't so smart. One of the things they claimed to have known was that everything that's physical is still evil and bad. So there's no way Jesus Christ could become a physical man. That would mean something good became something evil. Pastor David talked about it this morning. He said, I don't understand it. I don't understand how my iPhone works, but I use it. They didn't understand it, but they weren't in a position to take the faith position that Dr. Pastor David does, that we do. So instead, they tried to make sense of it. And the way the Gnostics tried to make sense of it was by saying that Jesus was the man. Christ was the divine God. That at the baptism of Jesus, one set of Gnostics followed, Christ came down and inhabited, possessed, if you will, dwelt within the man Jesus. There was a set of Gnostics who said when Jesus is in Gethsemane, Christ left. That when the crucifixion was happening, Christ was on another hill watching it. Because you can't kill God. These Gnostics uh, uh, said that, that when Jesus was resurrected, He wasn't fully resurrected. It wasn't a physical resurrection. It was an apparition. There was a set of Gnostics who said, that that's one branch. There was another branch of Gnostics that didn't say Jesus uh, uh, was the man and Christ was the divine who came down and then left. This set of Gnostics says, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ was God divine and he looked like a man, but he was an apparition. And when he walked on the sands of the seashore, he did not leave footprints which would have taken away like 30% of the sales of the footprints story 
at the local Christian bookstore. This is what, and so John writes his epistle to combat that. But that's why John in his epistle says, echoing what he's already written in his gospel. John 1, 1 through 4. It's like his gospel in miniature. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, we touched with our hands. Not an apparition. Touched with our hands concerning the Lagos word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim it. It was with the Father was made manifest to us. That that we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowships with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, all together. We're writing these things that our joy may be complete. So the Word becomes flesh. We've got eight minutes, seven minutes left. So let's do the last day. The Word became flesh, PowerPoint please, and dwelt among us. Now I've added and tabernacled. The reason why is the word dwelt that John uses, the Greek word dwelt, comes from a Greek word skeneo. I want to write skeneo down and just challenge you to, we played, have y'all played cranium? Okay, we played cranium last night. It's an interesting game. It's like 30 games rolled into one. And they have these little cards where they make you like guess things. Like, here are three letters and give me a June tune. It's pomp and circumstance if you ever draw that card. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. There is a Greek word, skeneo. Uh, there we go. Skeneo. Now, you're not going to maybe read all of those Greek letters, but let's put them into English letters. S, the K and the C. They didn't have a C, but this becomes a C. The K sound becomes a C. You've got E. That V-looking letter is actually an N. That N-looking letter is a long E. And that O is just sort of a W is an O. It's a, something at the end. So now that I show you how skeneo can be written in English, what does it read? Scene. A scene. Skene. This, you said this, well, what's the scene got to do with it? Well, that's what the in, in plays, in Greek plays and stuff, they would erect the scene for the actors. And typically it was done, not on our flats today, though they had that, but they would use tents to do it. What this really is, is a tent. Skeneo means a tent. The way the word's being used here by John, Jesus came and he pitched his tent among us. 
Now, if you're an Old Testament reader, there's one tent above all tents that's ever been pitched that has anything to do with God dwelling with his people. And what do we call that tent? The tabernacle. So I kind of made up a word. If we go back to the PowerPoint. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what it means. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we're going to look at this more. If you're reading next week, you're going to read more of this in the Old Testament. Because of what it meant for the tabernacle to be there. But just this week, what we looked at were Exodus 25, 35 through 38, a little bit of 39, a little bit of 31, threw in some number seven. Yes, it was a long day and I should have cut it up. I'm sorry. But you won't have to read those passages again all year. What I find profound about the tabernacle is God never said to the Israelites, build a tabernacle. He never said, pitch a tent and in the tent, put my, uh, um, put the Ark of the Covenant, put the mercy seat, put the Ten Commandments, put Aaron's rod, put a jar of manna. He didn't just say, hey, pitch a tent. He didn't say, go to academy and buy a tent. He didn't say, uh, some of you got a bunch of tents. Just take one of your tents and dedicate it to the Lord. No. He went in exquisite detail. He said, I want you to build a tent. I want you to build it by these dimensions. I want you to build it with these materials. I want it to look like this. And I'm going to give special spiritual abilities to certain people to do what they need to do because this is an important thing and I want it focused just right and I want it built exactly the way I want it built because this stands for something. My glory is going to come down here. And my glory doesn't dwell in an ordinary tent that you just have for ordinary purposes that you gave to someone else. It's got to be built special, unique, singularly for me. One tent for me by these specifications and nowhere else will it ever be adequate. And that's the tent you pitch and my glory will descend on that tent. And when my glory gets up and moves, you take that tent up and you move it to where my glory goes. Because my glory is in that tent that's made by my instructions and my directions. John knows that. When John says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus didn't come here because Mary just happened to get hit by a cosmic ray that somehow started meiosis and mitosis in her womb. Jesus is in a very deliberate house built to God's specifications by spiritual gifts that enabled humankind to do something humankind could not otherwise do because God was coming to dwell among men in that tent. And that's what Jesus was. So that's the point. We look then at Zechariah 2, at Psalm 84, at Psalm 43. All of those passages that talk about how marvelous it is to be in the dwelling of the Lord. My soul longs, yea, faints for the courts of the Lord. When may I go to be near the courts of the Lord? 
And that's the cry of our heart to be near Jesus now. And Paul explained it in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And Pastor David referenced this obliquely in his sermon today. Just as the way he talks, he talks scripture so much without giving chapter and verse. But this is the passage where, where it spoke, Pastor David was talking about wrestling with his son and how he purposefully held back. Gracie's got a boxer that mauls her, but he does it with his mouth covering his teeth so that there's no pain. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that even though Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus took on the humility and then humbled himself to humankind to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we have. That's what we read about in Luke. So those were our contextual readings this week that helped put into framework that part of John. I want to pray with you, and then next week we'll read some more. Yes, thank the Lord. I mean, the Lord has got a massive deal. His, His word is just amazing. Lord, we pause and we do give you all credit, glory, praise, and thanks that we get to be a part of your kingdom, that we are your children, that we live in the light of Jesus, that it changes who we are, that your light, your word, infuses us with wisdom, with understanding. It clarifies our path. You clarify our path. May we walk in that light, Lord. And may others see a reflection of you as you shine through us. That is our prayer in the name of our Lord, our light, our Jesus, the tabernacle of God among men who waits us in heaven. Amen.